0: Great to hear this story read as a reminder of this is how it has been told for generations and generations. It's in oral narrative it's a history story but it's also great literature it's a fascinating story it draws you in as you listen to it if you don't if you haven't already go ahead and open in your bibles to esther chapter 4 the passage that tiffany just read for us while you're turning there i was thinking of another story that i know in love i was thinking about it as it relates to the text this week one of my favorite stories ever written um, J.R.R. R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. I think everyone in the room is probably familiar. You've maybe read the books, seen the movies, or perhaps you haven't, but there's a scene in the first installment in The Fellowship of the Ring that I thought almost perfectly parallels the, the, the tension that Esther is entering into in this part of the story of Esther. And it involves Frodo. So if you remember, Frodo was the little hobbit that's been tasked with carrying the one ring, the ring of power, the evil ring. And he's the only one that is humble enough and unassuming enough that can take this ring and and without it corrupting him, can carry it to the fires of Mount Doom and destroy the ring in the fire so that Good will win, and evil will be destroyed. And all along the journey, Frodo's being sort of corrupted almost internally. You know, he's not completely immune to the power of the ring, and you start seeing that play out in him. Not only that, but he's being chased by these terrifying, like, nightmarish ghost wraith creatures. And so there's just terror all around him. And at the lowest, literally and figuratively, lowest moment of the story, uh, he and his company are in the mines, and they're down deep and dark where it's scary, and there's things, there's noises, and there's their sense they're being followed. And they have a little bit of a rest, and, and Frodo confides in Gandalf the wizard, who's this wise man that has sent him on this task. And Frodo, in just sort of a moment of honesty, says these words, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And as I thought about those words, I thought about my own story and parts and pieces of my life. And, you know, we're all in this together where we could say, yeah, I I wish this had never come to me, this thing, this loss, this broken dream, this desire that I had that didn't work out or this something good that I had that didn't turn out or this fear. I, I wish this had never come to me. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. Listen to Gandalf's reply. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. That's the question the book of Esther asks. What will you do with the time that is given you? You might not be happy about it. Things might not be going the way you wish they were going, or maybe they are. Maybe things are going well. The still question is still the same. What will you do? What will you do with the time? You didn't choose for you to be here exactly, probably. And some of you, you didn't even choose anything close to where you are right now. Others of you might say, well, yeah, I think I kind of chose where I am, but you're here nonetheless. What will you do? What will you do with the time that is given you? In Esther chapter 4, we see the question asked her, what will she do with the time that is given to her? And we know the story so well, we sometimes miss it. I want you this morning to feel the tension of this place that Esther is being asked to enter into. You heard it read beautifully by Tiffany earlier. I'm going to reread a couple of the passages. I'm going to summarize some of it. It's a rather long passage, and I want to draw out some lessons for us. So let's start back in verses 1 through 4. I want you to look at it, if you would, if you have your copy of God's Word. Otherwise, we'll put it on the screen. But I want you to see a couple of things in these first four verses. So beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him. But he did not accept them. A little bit of background. Remember the story last week. Eric did a great job of, of retelling it and teaching last week. This is the lowest point right here for the Jews. You know, here's what's happened. The, the king has made a decree that is unchangeable. When the king puts something into law, it's law. You know, it's not up for uh, um, review by the court of the land. No, the king is. All three branches of uh, of the legislature, everything. What the king says goes. He's made a law thanks to sort of the the sneaky conniving of a man named Haman. And the law says that on a date in the future, all Jews will be slaughtered and their possessions given away. So he was essentially giving carte blanche to the enemies of the Jews, which were all over the place and still are today, by the way, to go ahead and use this law to kill them on this certain day. And it is coming and there's no stopping it, at least from a human perspective. So this is what's happening. And so there's great mourning and, and weeping and wailing. Now let's talk about, public displays of grief in ancient culture because certainly they're hard for us to identify in our modern age sackcloth ashes wailing weeping loud I mean it's like it's like here I am I'm sad I'm hurting I'm in pain look at me right Doesn't that feel strange to you why would they do this (coughs) sackcloth is coarse material that they would put on as a garment and usually sit on as well it's designed to be uncomfortable it was usually made out of goat skin at that time. So, contrast nice, like, wool from a sheep that you'd nuzzle up to with, like, coarse fur from a goat. It would have been stiff, it would have been scratchy, put it on their body for the purpose of being uncomfortable. Why would you do that? Not only would you have the sackcloth, but you'd take ashes from a fire, you'd put it on your head, you'd let it all kind of smear over your face, put it on your arms and your legs so that you're almost completely black, covered in this ash. The only example I could think of to relate to was, was uh, you know, those chimney sweeps in uh, Mary Poppins. And they come down the chimney and they're covered in black. We watched this recently and my girls were like, ooh, they look scary looking. This is what was happening. They were purposely drawing attention to themselves. And it wasn't just visual, it was audible. Weeping, loud wailing. Why did they do this? Simply put, They were expressing outwardly what they were feeling inwardly. You know, talk about wearing your emotion on your sleeves. This is how the ancient culture, and still some cultures today, invites their community into the brokenness, into the hurt, into the pain with them. It's a visible and audible reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Something has happened in my life, the sackcloth and ashes was saying, And that something is hard, and I'm struggling, and I'm grieving. I have lost someone. There's been a death, maybe, or maybe a child that has rebelled and left the family, or maybe there's a brokenness relationship, or maybe there's a sickness or an illness. There is something that is not right, and it's almost a rallying cry for the community to come in and comfort and grieve with and be with and have compassion, you see. This is what this is all about. Now, a couple of quick lessons for us on this text. Do you know the one man who was untouchable as it relates to the grief I don't know if you caught it, verse 2. No one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So here's what the king, Ahasuerus, was doing. He essentially was trying to draw an invisible circle around himself, and he would say, you may not grieve in my presence. You may not be broken in my presence. You may not have issues in my presence. Everything is happy. Everything is awesome. In my palace, in my domain, where I make the rules... Keep your heartache, keep your hurting, keep your grief, keep your sackcloth and ashes out there. You see, he wouldn't let them in. Now, even Esther, even Esther tries to give Mordecai new clothes. Did you catch that? She sends him fresh, clean clothes. Mordecai, don't be sad. Mordecai, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You don't have to grieve. What does Mordecai do with the clothes that Esther sends? He won't have it. He refuses the clothes. Why does he refuse the clothes? Because something's not right and sometimes it's not right to act like everything's okay when it's not okay. Here's why I belabor this point. We've kind of bought into this subtle lie that the, the, the way to grieve as a godly Christian is just put on a happy face and just say, you know, God's in control. I'm okay. You know, smile. You know, a little ding from the corner of your teeth. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, We do this. We do this. We kind of bought into this idea. Like, like it's, it's, not, it's not really godly to weep and mourn and feel pain and cry out things are broken. Couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, I'd say it this way. We, of all people, the people of God, should feel the brokenness of this creation more acutely than others. Why? Because we know how it's supposed to be. We've read about the garden. We've read about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. And so we recognize, yeah, yeah, we can't whitewash over what's going on around us. Yes, God is still in control. Yes, he's on the move. We'll get to that in a minute. But to just gloss too quickly over hurt and pain is not being authentic. To live out as a people of God, the brokenness in the creation that we're currently living in. Mordecai is an example of that. You know what else Mordecai is an example of? Someone who's grieving well, but grieving with hope. Because we're also called to grieve with hope. The world out there, they fall into despair We never have to fall into despair. Yes, we feel. Yes, we weep. We mourn, even bitterly sometimes. But we know that not only things are not the way they're supposed to be, but they won't always be the way they are now. (laughs) Redemption is coming. Salvation is coming. And for Mordecai, he wears the sackcloth and ashes, but he doesn't slip into despair. He actually engages and believes with faith that God is going to move. And he knows that God might just move Through his niece, Esther. So here's what I want to do next. I want to summarize the next part of the scripture because what happens next is Mordecai relays to Esther all that's happened. In fact, it's interesting. I don't know if you caught it when Tiffany read it. Esther didn't have the full story. Like, Mordecai literally has to send her the text of the edict until she understands what's going on. Isn't that interesting? She's so isolated from everything up in the palace. The whole city's in chaos. The whole city's in mourning. And Esther's like, I don't really know what's even going on. It's her husband that made the law. Fascinating, isn't it? So he catches her up, and then he has a terrifying request of Esther. He says, Esther, you need to go to the king and you need to plead on behalf of the Jews. And what does Esther say? You, you heard it read right earlier. Esther says, I can't. I can't. There's a, there's a law. If anyone goes unbidden, unwelcome, undesired into the king's presence, he or she is killed. And by the way, I know I'm undesired right now because he hasn't called for me in 30 days. Now think about this for a minute, men and women. King didn't sleep alone. Hadn't called Esther in 30 days. She was out of favor with him. She she was an old toy that he had no use for at the moment. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you need to do this. And Esther says, I can't do it. I will die if I go into his presence. Now, I I want us to to drill in before we, we read the rest of the text, reread the rest of the text. I want us to drill in to Esther's Objection, her resistance. Because some of you are probably thinking, oh, yeah, man, that makes total sense, man. She's, she, she's going to die. She shouldn't have a choice. She can't do it. Others of you may be thinking, Esther, stop being selfish. You know, the, the whole nation is at stake. At least do your part. Both are true. Both are true in a way. Here's how, here's how I would summarize it Esther's objection is both very understandable and also very familiar. To us, let me tease that out. It's understandable and familiar. The, the, the first one's easier to explain. It's understandable because if she does this, it could cost her her life. In fact, it probably would. You know, like she's thinking in her head, chances are, I'm not going to get the golden scepter because I'm out of favor. Okay, chances are she's going to die. Like you know, if she's just being using her logic. More likely she's going to die than not. If she does this, it could cost her her life. But here's the part that's very familiar to us. If she does this, it will cost her identity. It could cost her life, but it will cost her identity. See, there's more on the line than just Esther's life. Let me explain what I mean by this. What is Esther's identity? Beyond her beauty... All right, That's her surface level identity. That's, that's not really how she, how, how she would probably uh, um, get a sense of identity. Let me explain what, what I mean. Ever since Esther was little, she's had to be a survivor. She was an orphan. We don't know what happened to her parents, but she didn't grow up with her parents. She was raised by her uncle Mordecai. God put her with a good and godly man to raise her, but he was not her father. He, was not, he couldn't, couldn't provide the things that her father and mother could on his own. And then maybe just at the place where she was finally starting to get comfortable in that environment, she was plucked from that. She was probably an an early teenager. And she was put into this harem of women that had to compete for the king's affections. And the object was, the one that can satisfy the desires, the fleshly desires of the king the most, is the winner. Now, what do you do if you're in that situation and you're Esther? The only thing you can do is survive. The only thing you can do, you've got to cut off your feeling, you've got to cut off your emotion, you've got to cut off everything. I'm just going to do exactly what I need to do to make it to another day and make it to another day after that and make it to another day after that because we all know what happens when someone doesn't please the king. And then she wins this prize and she becomes queen and we get a glimpse of what it was like to be married to the king of Persia. She couldn't even go in his presence without losing her head unless she's uninvited. You call that a good life? Esther's identity, beyond her beauty, is she's a survivor. She's the only one of those women that was left standing. So that that wicked, depraved contest was was some combination of of the TV shows Survivor and The Bachelor. (laughs) Put those together, and Esther was the winner, right? She's the sole survivor. It's who she is. She's a survivor. She does whatever she needs to do to keep from getting killed. Here Mordecai comes in and he says, Esther, I'm going to ask you to do the exact opposite of everything that you've trained yourself to do your entire life. You're a survivor and I'm going to ask you to put your life at risk. Lay it all on the line, you see. He puts his finger right on her identity. And, and, and Esther says, I, I can't. I can't do it. There's too much at stake. Now, here's where this gets familiar for you and me. All of us, every single one of us, have something in our life that we hold so close, we hold so dear, that we would rather give up our physical lives than open our hands to this thing. Here's another way to think about it. Here's another way to say it. Whatever it is in your life that you hold most dear, that you hold most precious, that you hold most close, at some point in time, you will be required to open your hands and release it. I don't necessarily like that. I just believe it's true. If your identity is your beauty or your health, age will overtake you. If your identity is a romantic relationship, he or she will not always be there, either relationally or physically. He won't. She won't. If your identity is in some special talent or ability or just kind of, uh, you, you've been able to make it on your own, there will be a day when you will not be able to perform well enough to keep making it. You're either health will fail you or you will not be relevant with your skill or talent anymore or someone who will come that is better than you at that skill or talent. If your identity is in your children, they will move away. Lord willing. <laughs> some, some of you in the room, Lord willing. They will move away. They might fall away and they could even possibly pass away. Whatever it is that you hold most dear, most close, at some point in time, you will be required to release it. And and here's what you find when you're asked to release that thing that you hold most dear, that you hold most close, that you're most afraid of losing. You'll find that when the moment comes that you're asked to release it, your hands suddenly stop working And you can't do it. You can't release it. It's too much. It's too important. This is where Esther is. Mordecai says, You need to risk your life and put your identity as a survivor on the line to go to the king. And Esther says, I can't. I can't. I can't open my hand to that. That's her objection. It is very understandable. And it is very familiar to us. But Mordecai can't take that for an answer. There's too much at stake. So he's a good father figure to her because he doesn't let her off the hook. I want you to see how he responds. Let's read verse 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them, meaning the servants, to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? I want to tell you why I think his reply is so brilliant. It goes beyond that famous last little phrase, too. He does three things, actually. Three things Mordecai does to help Esther. Number one, he reminds her who she is. Her true identity. Look back at verse 13. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. You see what he's saying here? He's actually saying that Esther, despite your privilege, despite your position, despite all that you've gone through, your true identity is you're a Hebrew, you're Jewish. It's in your blood. God chose it for you, you didn't choose it for yourself, and you can't change it. You can no more not be Jewish than I could turn myself into a pumpkin. You know? It's gonna be there, it's who you are, and sooner or, sooner or later it's gonna come out. That's your true identity. Even stronger than your identity as queen or your identity as survivor or identity in your beauty, you are Jewish. But see, there's a beautiful part of being Jewish. <laughs> The beautiful part of being Jewish, especially, you know, from the Old Testament perspective, and, and I would say even to this day, is you know that there's something about your race, something about your blood, something about your family origin that is specially chosen of God. You're a child of the true God, Esther. Don't forget. Don't get confused who you really are. That's your true identity. That's the first thing he does. He reminds her who she is. Number two, after he reminds her who she is, he reminds her who's in control. I love what Mordecai says in verse 14. I mean, this is just so good. If you remain silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another source, another place. Here's what he's saying. The king does not have the final word. Haman does not have the final word. There's someone else in control. Deliverance will come. You hear the faith in that? It's like, Esther, whether you do it or whether you don't, God's on the move here. He's in control. She needs to know that in order to be able to release this, you see. She needs to know three things. She needs to know who she really is. She needs to know who's in control. The third thing she needs to know, or third thing she needs to do, rather, is she needs to look beyond herself to see God at work. Mordecai invites her to open her eyes to things that she cannot see. Invisible things that far transcend her own worries and her own fears and her own tangible circumstances and her own relationship with the king and everything else that she's all fearful about, everything else she's worried about. He's saying there is something else here at work. And this is where we get this wonderful, beautiful phrase that we all associate with the book of Esther. Notice it's a question. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. That question is pregnant with anticipation of what God's going to do. And notice that he worded it in the form of a question, not a statement. Because a good question is always more powerful than a statement. He could have simply said, Esther, you're queen for such a time as this. But what he did instead, he says, who knows, perhaps, maybe, Now, why is that so important? How does that help Esther do from here to here? It engages her mind. It engages her imagination. She's able to start to own it for herself. She's able to ask that question of her God. God, what would you have me do? You see, he's transferring ownership to her to engage in this because she's stuck. She can't release it. This question grabs you and grabs me and invites us into the narrative as well. The more I've studied Esther, the more I've thought about and read read this text and prayed through this text, the more I believe that this famous state this this question, you know, who knows whether you've attained royalty for such a time as this. I think it's a little bit like the, you know, the open door from the wardrobe into Narnia. And what I mean by that is this question, I think, is going to be the place where our hard, tangible, visible world intersects with the invisible world that we can't see but that is actually just as real, if not more real, than what we see and taste and touch every day. I think it's an open door. And, and, and I want to ask you, the, re- the rest of the time I have, and I want to spend on like, applying this to you. I want to ask you the same question Mordecai asked Esther. And who knows that maybe God has put that relationship, that circumstance, that heartache, that joy, that position, that new job, that illness, that ability to see things other people can't see, that intuition, that skill, that talent. Who knows that God has put that in your life for such a time as this? Here's what that question forces you to do. It forces you to take your actual, real, living life world, like you're driving to work, you're preparing dinner, you're ironing the clothes world, and on top of that world to lay all the things you believe to be true about God from this book, but are afraid to know how they actually matter to you, and lay those things together. To take what you believe to be true, your theology, your doctrine, that whether you think you know theology or not, you know theology. There's things that you believe about God. We've been singing about them all morning. That God redeems broken things. That God is worthy of praise. That he is with us. That we are not alone. You see, all these things we're singing about. Can you take those truths and can you lay them on your Monday morning life? And your Wednesday afternoon life? And your Friday hardship? You see? You see? Who knows? but that God is on the move in ways that you cannot see. And what God would wish to do, I think, is the same three things that Mordecai did for Esther. Remind you of who you are, remind you who's in control, and then dare you to have eyes to see what you cannot see without faith. So I want to walk you through a process of figuring that out of being able to live into it and as i thought about how do i help you with this the, the the stumbling block that i've come on in my own life as i've thought about what do i do with this how do i know where god is at work i don't know i don't want to just assume that he's put that neighbor in my life for that reason or that he's put that thing in my life for a certain reason i don't, I don't want to just assume that god's in that i want to really listen to him i want to hear him why won't he speak clearly to me i think that's the stumbling block that's that's kind of where we get stuck and I've thought about this, and I thought, you know, maybe the best thing that I could do to help us is to, to give you kind of what I'd say is the overarching principle in Scripture for how, how you know God is at work. In other words, you might think of it this way. Where do you find God at work in your story? How do you know when he's at work in your story? Where can you be sure that this is a work of God and not just some random, you know, coincidence, so to speak? How, how do you have confidence in that? I want to give you a principle. And then you see this all throughout the, the, the scripture. I'll, I'll make some references to a couple places and then I'll draw it out how it's happening in this text in this morning. Here's the principle. And I'll say it a couple times because it's a, a little longer, a little wordy. God's works of providence are always moving toward his purposes of redemption. God's works of providence, invisible hand, are always moving toward his purposes, not necessarily our purposes, But not just his purposes, end of story, his purposes of redemption. Because that's what his purposes are about. God's works of providence are always moving toward his purposes of redemption. So there is a trajectory to God's movement, to the hand of providence. Providence. There's a trajectory, there's a direction, there's an intentionality to the way he's on the move. So don't just imagine that he's just around kind of sprinkling pixie dust on you and, yeah, well, you know, she needs a little bit of this, she needs a little bit of that, I'm going to encourage her here and I'm going to put this other hardship or allow this hardship here, willy-nilly. There's direction to it. There's intentionality in it. It's like an arrow pointing somewhere. Where is it pointing to? God's always moving toward his purposes of redemption. Do y'all remember that book that came out about 15 years ago? It sold a few copies. It was called The Purpose Driven Life. Yeah, it sold like a billion, billion copies. The first sentence of that book should have been the reason why it never sold more than 20 copies. You know, you're laughing. She knows the first sentence. Here's the first sentence of that book. It's not about you. I don't want to read a book that begins that way. I just don't. If I'm honest, I don't. I think he's right, but I want to modify that just a little bit. in, in, in fairness to Rick Warren, if you read the whole book, I, I think he actually says what I'm about to say. He just takes, takes a lot of words to say it. It is not about you, but it does involve you. It is not about you, but it does involve you. Here's what I mean by that. It's not about you getting more, just getting more stuff for the sake of being more comfortable. It's not about you getting that relationship back or that job back or something miraculous happening in your life just so you'll be happier, just so things will go better for you. God loves you. He doesn't want you to be unhappy, none of that. But he's just not out there saying, how can I be a Santa Claus for him? How can I give him what's on the wish list as long as they've been nice and not naughty? That's not how God works, you see. It's not about you, but it does involve you. How does it involve you? Think of it this way. God's purposes are not about your comfort, but rather about your redemption. God's purposes are not about just the happiness of the world, as our culture would tell us, but the redemption of the world. God's purposes are not about just the incremental improvement of society, which is where our government's trying to work, which is where our technology's trying to work. Everything's going to be a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. We're starting to think better. We're starting to know better. Life's becoming easier. God's purposes are not in just making your life incrementally easier. God's purpose is in redeeming the whole creation. That's where this is going. Now, the question that you should be asking, the question that I've been asking is, okay, so how does my little story fit in with the big story? If if Rob is right, and I, I just think you, you can't argue from scripture when, when you really consider the whole thing, that God's always moving toward his purposes of redemption. This is the end of the story. Redemption is coming. Broken things will be made new. How does your story enter into that? Well, I think to answer the question, you have to consider what redemption actually means. Just literally, like not theological language, just think about dictionary language. Redemption means taking something that's been broken or misused and restoring it back to its original purpose. So, you know, some of you may be old enough to remember this. You get glass bottles and you go redeem the glass bottles. What does that mean? You take them back and, and you would get paid for them. There'd be an exchange. And then those bottles were refurbished, cleaned out, restored to be used what they were originally intended for, you see. That's redemption. Now, you overlay some theological concepts on that and you start to see how the whole Bible is about redeeming broken things, broken relationships with God restored. Uh, look at the end of, in Revelation 21, 22, which we talked about in the whole Revelation series. What do you see? Everything's back the way it should be. Relationships are, the, are right. There's no more health problems. There's no more crying. There's no more tears. See, it's all coming, you see. There's a trajectory to God's providence. But what you really have to see if you're going to enter into the story is you have to see what I call the micro stories of redemption all around you. Because what I just explained to you is the macro, the cosmic story of redemption. And what you see in Esther's life is both. There's a big story of redemption, God saving all the Jews. And there's a micro story of redemption with one young girl's life being redeemed And this is how it works for you and me. Think about Esther for a minute, and then I'm going to ask you to think about you. Here's a girl that's been trained not to have a voice. Here's a girl that only can do what will keep her alive the next day. And somehow, she's going to be transformed from that shy I can't do that. I don't have a voice, girl, to a powerful woman who will courageously enter into the king's presence and tell him to act, tell him to change. How does someone get transformed? How does someone go from I can't let go to next week, as you'll see, if I perish, I perish. How does someone get transformed? How could you get transformed in that way? I want to give you another story of redemption from the Scripture. They're literally on every single page, these little micro-stories of God entering into someone's life and redeeming something that's been amiss or broken or wrong or or off-kilter. Remember the story of this little man, Zacchaeus? He's not even really a major story in the Bible. Everybody knows him from the song, right? We know he's short. What else do you know about him? He's really rich. How did he get rich? Well, two ways. One is we know he cheated people. But beyond that, he must have been good at making money. And he must have been good at the political game that got him in the position that enabled him to take advantage of the community, you see. And so Jesus meets Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your place. You know, know, the song's going in your head right now, and that's, that's great. And then what happens at the end of the story? Zacchaeus takes his gifts at making money, you see, his story, and he gives it all away. And not just what he got through the the ill means of the stealing, he gives above and beyond. See, he becomes a generous man. God takes his ability to make money and says, I planted that in you all along. You've been misusing it. I'm going to put it to work in the redemption of your community around you, you see. Think about Peter. What's Peter really good at before he ever meets Jesus? Fishing. Fishing. No surprise, Jesus says, I'll make you a fisherman, all right. I'm not going to ask you to leave your core identity. I'm going to redeem your identity. I'm going to make you a fisher of men, you see. How about Paul? Before he was Paul, he was Saul. He was the smartest theological person around. He could beat anybody in a debate. Christ says, I'm going to redeem those natural gifts, and I'm going to make you the greatest evangelist this world will ever see. Now, if you think that that's not true in your story, if you think that that just only happens in the pages of the Bible, then you're not actually reading this book like the people of God. You're reading it maybe just like a, a, um, an academic or maybe you're reading it like a theologian or maybe you just, you don't read it at all. But to read this book as a person of God means to find yourself in the grand narrative of redemption. Is to ask yourself, what pieces of my story does God want to redeem? And you've got to start with your relationship with God. Every single one of those people Old and New Testaments, the only way that any kind of redemption happens in their story is when they get reconciled to their relationship with God. That's got to happen first. And the only way that happens, we know, Scripture tells us, is through the person of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. We look to Christ. We trust in Christ. And then redemption starts to happen. Some of you in the room, you don't have a redemption story yet. You have a religious story, but you don't have a redemption story. And honestly, what God would call you to this morning is to look at Jesus Christ, to reconcile, to redeem your broken relationship to God, to dare to believe that there's more going on in your story than meets the eye, to call you back to your true identity, to remind you who's really in control, and then to say, would you have eyes to see me at work? You can only see that by putting faith in Jesus Christ. That's your next step. Others of you in the room, you've got that redemption already happened. You know, I asked for your redemption story. You you, can tell me, man, this is my testimony. This is my story of God saving me from my sin. Hallelujah. But redemption does not stop with your initial salvation. God has you where you are for a reason, and it's related to his grand story of redemption. Do you have eyes to see the places in your story where these little micro stories of redemption are happening so that God can heal you, restore you, bring you back to his intended purpose, and then use you to bring about redemption in those around you? This is how the story goes, y'all. This is what happens to Esther. A young girl is transformed at her identity level so that she can trust God and release something that she never could apart from relying on her Savior. And by the way, if all you do is look to Esther as a good example, you'll never get there because she wasn't strong enough on her own. There had to be something that transformed in her and that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about how do you go from, I I feel like I need to do this, I want to do this, but I can't do it, to if I perish, I perish. So here's how we're going to close the service you have in your program a bookmark. I'm going to invite you to pull that bookmark out. Everybody pull it out. Okay? I'm not going to ask you to do anything embarrassing or you know, stand up and you know, shout anything out, nothing like that. Um, on the front side of the bookmark is the, the pivotal verse in the story of Esther. Esther 4.14. On the back side of this bookmark is some blank lines. All right? Here's what I want you to do with these blank lines, and I'm going to actually give you a minute or two to do it is I want you to think through what could it be that God has put in my life or allowed in my life for such a time as this. Now that's a big question. It's a question that your preacher can't answer for you. My job is by the power of the spirit to respeak the text to you and allow the spirit to speak it to you, you see. This is how God moves. Like he moves through his word. He does things. He changes lives. He calls people to certain things through the scripture. Literally through the words of Mordecai, God changed Esther's heart. Do you dare to believe he would do something like that again in 2016? Maybe not not on a grand scale, but that's the whole point of this message. It's happening not just on the grand scale. It's happening at the small levels. It's happening in you. It's happening in me. Would you have eyes to see? Would you have ears to hear? I want to give you some categories. I I think that might help you just to sort of process. And I'll say this too. For some of you, you might not know what it is today. And that's okay. That's actually why we made this a bookmark. We're going to invite you to put it in your Bible in the story of Esther. And every week as we go to the next part of the story, you'll pull that out and and you'll either see what you've already written on it or you'll see those blank lines. It'll remind you that you need to write something on it. I actually believe that the Spirit is going to tell you what it is over the course of this series. I actually believe that. So let me give you some categories to kind of, you know, put some flesh on the bones to kind of get you thinking in some certain ways that maybe God would lead you in. Some of you have dark and broken pieces of your story and God wants to redeem them. Some things that came into your life that you didn't ask for, just like Esther. And at some point in time, God's going to say, I, I want to pull back the curtain and I want to do some healing work in you and I want to show you why this was allowed in your life. That's a lot of you in the room. I believe one of the reasons that God led us to the book of Esther is because there's some stories that he's going to do some healing work in in our congregation. And that might be you, and that's what you need to write down. And maybe it's too personal for you to write it down, just write a word or something that you know what that means. Some of you, you don't resonate with that. You know, the, the Holy Spirit's just not speaking to you in that category. Here's another category. Some of you have a relationship with someone in your life where you might say, perhaps God has brought that person to me for a purpose. Maybe it's a person you don't even like. Maybe it's a neighbor and you just don't get along. Maybe it's a hard relationship. Or maybe it's someone that's just come into your life and you're like, I don't know what this is about, but perhaps open handedly, I'm going to pray this. I'm going to say, maybe this person's in my life for such a time as this. Maybe God wants to use me in the redemption story of this person. Some of you are stuck in patterns of sin and they have you locked down. You're not free. Now, here's the thing, y'all. We all sin. There's not a one of us that didn't sin this week, this day. But sometimes we get so stuck in patterns of sin that it sucks the life out of us and we can't let go. We're we're not free. And for some of you, this is where God's going to lead you, either today or in the coming weeks. And you may not even want to be led there. There's a part of you that wants, but you're afraid and you're ashamed God's going to lead you to a place to get free. It might come in the form of a decision you make. It might come in the form of someone that you share with, comes alongside you and helps you. It might come in the form of all kinds of ways, but God does not desire for you to be stuck and enslaved. He desires for you to be free. Not perfect, but free. That's what some of you need to write down on this bookmark. Some of you are really good at something. Making money, talking to people. You've got a talent, you've got a skill that just comes naturally to you, but honestly, you've been leveraging it for the most part for your own survival, for your own flourishing, for your own good, just like Esther understandably leveraged her beauty. And God would say, Have you ever thought that maybe I gave you that ability, that talent, that skill to do something redemptive? I don't know what that means. Ask Dave young, and get you in some da- dangerous waters. And maybe it won't lead you to China. Maybe it'll just lead you to do something on the side. I talked to a guy after the first service, and he said, he said, man, God is speaking to me about using some ability that I have in video storytelling, and I want to tell some of these stories of redemption so that our whole body can see them. How exciting is that? It could be something for you that God would wish to redeem, use for its intended purpose, you see. Some of you have been given an opportunity. You have a role, you have a position, you have wealth, you have influence, you're head of an organization or a company or you know the one that is and God is gonna speak to you about how to use that opportunity for such a time as this to bring about redemption in the creation in some big or small way. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But I wanna give you a moment to reflect. So let's do that now and then I'll pray for us. father we pray to you and we ask you to speak to us whether it's now and today and i I know there's some in the room that you've just clearly spoken to them and they may or may not like what they've heard but it's from you many others in the room aren't sure yet they're not even sure if you will tell them if you will speak to them if you will invite them into the story but i know you will And so I pray that you would do that in your timing. And Father, whatever has been written or will be written on those bookmarks, we know that what they all have in common is your hand of providence sculpting and shaping these men and women to become who they are, where they are, in relationships with the particular people that you have chosen, in particular places that you have led them to for such a time as this. And I pray finally, Father, that they would not just be motivated, or inspired to do something. But they would look to the only one that can transform them to the place so that they can open their hands and move into the areas that you've called them to. And we pray that in the name of the one who is able, Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, amen, amen. Have a great week.